Hello and welcome to the Owen Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matters to you. My name is Helen Dyke. I'm a senior associate solicitor in the employment team. In the wake of the pandemic, one positive that I think we're starting to see is a real desire to change and improve how we as employers care for the well-being of our staff. And a key part of that relates to equality, diversity and inclusion. We're talking to our clients about their agendas for future development. And many employers of all sectors are increasingly focused on how to make improvements to ensure that they've got a diverse and inclusive culture. It almost feels like it's stating the obvious that businesses get the most productivity from their employees when they can feel engaged, included, and that they can be authentic at work. Many of our clients are working with us to develop their policies and training programs to include a focus on gender identity. Now, that's a huge step forward in terms of changing attitudes and the culture of the workplace. But sadly, this acceptance is not always the lived reality of many transgender employees who regularly experience stigma and discriminatory behaviour at work and in their daily lives. This discrimination can range from feeling ignored through to campaigns of targeted bullying and harassment. This not only impacts well-being, engagement and performance, but it can also lead to the risk of litigation. Now, over the past decade, there's been a real growing awareness that gender identity is not limited to the binary of male or female. Facebook, for example, now has 71 different gender options. The UK's Office for National Statistics is working on collecting official data, but according to estimates, around 1% of the population might identify as trans, including people who identify as non-binary. Now, that would mean around 600,000 trans and non-binary people in Britain. A Stonewall trans report from 2018 confirmed that two in five trans people and three in 10 non-binary people have experienced a hate crime or incident because of their gender identity in the last 12 months. One in eight trans employees have been physically attacked by colleagues or customers in the last year. If you've decided to listen into this podcast, it's likely that your organisation wants to be supportive. And no doubt there are many well-meaning managers that welcome diversity. But I think it's fair to say that there can be a certain nervousness around getting it right with supporting trans staff. So today we shall be discussing how you as an employer or an HR professional can ensure that your organisation is a diverse and trans inclusive workplace. My guest today is Kat Burton. Kat worked for British Airways for many years and progressed all the way from air cadet to senior long-haul airline captain. Kat's final role with BA before retiring in 2017 was British Airways Flight Operations Diversity Champion and she was their most senior woman pilot. Kat is now an independent aviation and diversity consultant and a senior flight instructor at Cardiff International Airport. Amongst many other voluntary roles, including work with schools, Kat is chair of Race Equality First and of the Gender Identity Research and Education Society, a UK-wide organisation whose purpose is to improve the lives of trans and gender diverse people of all ages, including those who are non-binary and non-gender. Kat, thank you very much for joining us today. Helen, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much indeed for inviting me. Now, you've been quoted, Kat, as saying in 1972, British Airways had a woman pilot, but they didn't know it. And at the time, neither did I. Could you talk us through your incredible 44 year career with British Airways? Yes, that would be my pleasure. Yeah, that quote 
it, it's really a way of getting away from the born in the wrong body sort of memes that you, you see associated with transgender people, especially in the press. It doesn't fit most of us to, to say we were born in the wrong body. I was born in my body and I'm still in the same body. Uh, it's had a few modifications along the way, but uh, that, that really expresses how I feel. I was myself throughout my life. I should certainly have known I was transgender by the age of 14, but I repressed it. I locked it up in a little box at the back of my brain, Mark, never open this box. And what that allowed me to do was to start a career with British Airways back in 1971, in fact. British Airways didn't even exist then. I like to say British Airways joined me in 1974 when they were created. But I was a, a cadet pilot with a small airline in South Wales called Cambrian Airways. And I was doing it while I was presenting and identifying even as male. Had I been presenting as female in 1972, or even had I been born as a girl, I wouldn't have got a job. I certainly wouldn't have been sponsored by an airline. There weren't any airline pilots with major airlines in the UK in 1972 that were female, never mind trans. So in 1972, the only way I had a career was because everybody saw me as male, including myself. If we fast forward to about 1992, a friend of mine uh, was transgender, again, funnily enough, at a small airline in South Wales. And in 1992, her airline were surprisingly supportive. They said, well, actually, we haven't got any female pilots, never mind trans pilots, so there's no uniform for female pilots. You'll have to design your own. So she did. She made quite a good job of it. And she came back to work. But within six weeks of coming back, she'd been bullied out by fellow pilots, by her peers, who simply didn't want to fly with her, wouldn't fly with her. So she fell out of aviation into other fields. She's now back flying, but as a flying instructor. And as I found out since retiring, that's extremely low paid and very much considered the lowest rung on the professional aviation ladder. Fast forward again now to my transition. And I'm going to use British Airways as an example of how to do it, because everything they did was utterly exemplary. I decided to transition because I'd been grounded by the Civil Aviation Authority for something entirely unrelated, a health problem, um, a heart problem, in fact, that they wanted investigating. And while they were investigating, they said, well, you can't fly while we're investigating it, Cap. We've got to get this finished. So they grounded me and it turned out to be four months. But right at the start of the grounding, I told British Airways that I was transgender. I told the Civil Aviation Authority that I was transgender. I said, you know, while I'm grounded, you may as well take all this into account. And I told British Airways, you know, I'll probably come back as the old me because I've only got three years, four years left to go till I retire. Let's uh, let's not rock the boat too much. But I'm really fortunate in that my absence manager, I think most companies probably recognize that term these days when when somebody goes on the sick, you've got somebody who phones you once a week to find out how you're doing and see when you're coming back. She didn't have much work to do because it was the CAA that were going to tell her when I was going to come back to work. But when I told her I was trans, she first of all, she asked my name. And from that moment on, there were no interactions between me and her that didn't use my correct name, Kat. Catherine. And she appreciated that, you know, it was only a 50% chance or less that I'd come back as cat. But she put in all the work through the summer that would allow me to come back, how to change all the IT systems, how to change my air, airside ID pass, um, how to change my licenses, all that sort of thing. After three months of being grounded, I hadn't had to pretend. Up until the grounding, I'd been going to work as the old me, but living a lot of my life as, as the real me, as cat. But while I was grounded, I didn't have to go through that dual role pretense. I was me virtually all the time. Occasional 
back to the old role for, for lunch with a, a couple of grandkids that hadn't yet been told I was me. But for the most part, I was me. And every time I went back to have lunch, by the evening, I was in tatters emotionally. I really was. It was hard to have to go back to somebody that was a pretense. That pretense I'd been carrying on all my life up until this point, 60 odd years. And I just couldn't do it anymore. So I phoned Tracy, my absence manager, and said, it's going to be Kat that comes back to work when I, when I get uh, my, my license back. Her response was textbook. She said, oh, Kat, that's terrific news. All the work I've done through the summer is not going to go to waste. So from there, we went on to exploring how I was going to come back. They closed uniform stores so that I could go in and have a fitting with the technical manager of the company that makes British Airways uniforms. And he said, well, you know, I've, I've, I've actually amended uniforms for transgender women a couple of times. He said, there's a few things that we tend to try and do. One is to emphasize your hips and minimize your shoulders. Just give you that little bit more of a feminine silhouette when you're in uniform. Uh, he said, well, you know, we'll, we'll get this right. And they did. And then it was time for me to come back to work. And that meant going in the simulator to have my license stood up. So the first thing that Tracy did was to send a notice to all the pilots and we arranged it together. She arranged exactly how many people I wanted to tell. She arranged exactly how the mechanism should work. And we came to this plan that she was going to send a very short official notice. By this stage, we'd all got iPads. We were working electronically. So everybody in the company, every pilot in the company saw my notice at the same time or at least had it delivered to their inboxes at the same time. But at exactly the same moment, I was sitting in a, in a, I remember I was sitting in a bar in Soho at the time with my laptop out and I pressed enter on a post to our union bulletin board forum, uh, which was a much longer and more complicated post. Now, the notice Tracy sent was very much an iron fist in a velvet glove. It said, Cat Burton is coming back to work after a short medical absence. You lot have all had diversity training. Put it into effect or else. In other words, very clearly saying that the company supported me and not anybody who harassed me. But my post was much longer and more complex. It was a couple of sides of A4 popped online. And basically it said, you've all been told you've got to be nice to me at work, but you haven't got to be nice to me here. This is the open season place. This is where you can be honest with me. This is where you can make comments. Uh, and that, that post was there for not very long, actually, because we thought that the press had got hold of it. They'd certainly got hold of my story. It turned out that somebody leaked the official notice. But we thought it was that post. But in a week that it was up, it had 2,000 responses and 10,000 views. And there were a couple of questioning responses. There was nothing, nothing unpleasant. It was just, you know, well, good luck to you, Cap, but we haven't got a clue what it is you're trying to achieve. Um, but most of them were good-hearted banter. And we're a pretty quick-witted uh, lot in, in aviation. And one of the questions that um, I put to the, or in fact, one of the comments I made to the uh, assembled pilots was, you lot have all been so nice to me. I owe, owe you all a beer down the route at some stage. And quick as a flash, one of the forum wits came back and said, a beer cat, isn't that letting the side down? And I said, hey, I said I was buying you a beer. I'm on cocktails. So that was the, that was the nature of the, the reintroduction. Then I actually came back to work for my first day in uniform, and that was to fly the simulator. After four months, I assume you've forgotten how to fly. So you have to go through a full simulator check. And off I went into the simulator. And I was there with a trainer, a training captain who was sitting behind running the simulator. But obviously they called in a first officer to sit next to me to, so that we could operate as a normal crew. And we went through all of this 
and tell about, we went through the briefing, which lasts two hours for simulated details, and then a four-hour simulated detail. And about an hour and a half into the simulated detail, we were doing, I think it, we were doing an emergency descent drill, as if the airplane had depressurized at 35,000 feet. And one of the things that's involved in that is for me to make an announcement on the PA. But when we've done an emergency descent, we've got oxygen masks on. So you can't use the PA because it sounds like Darth Vader. So what we do is we call uh, the all stations call and the senior cabin crew member picks up the phone. And whenever somebody answers the phone, you always say who it is and where you are. So that should have been, hi there, cat on the flight deck. And I used my old name. And the two guys almost fell off their seats laughing. And I could see it was with relief. And I said, what's the matter with you two silly so-and-sos? And they said, oh, cat, we've been sitting here for the last three and a half hours terrified what would happen if we used your old name by mistake so i said oh you silly pair i said you know i can tell the difference between somebody being malicious and using it intentionally and a slip of the tongue i said don't even think about worrying about that for the rest of this will you and i learned a lesson myself from that that i needed to be open and upfront with my colleagues that i was okay with people having a slip of the tongue and not to worry about it and perhaps the lesson to be learned from 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 their point of view is exactly as they did don't make a huge fuss about it if you do slip just say sorry cat and get on if you if you make a real big deal of it it's as bad as the, the you know the, the getting it wrong in the first place of course it's nice if people make the effort to, to actually use your new name all the time but if you if you slip at the tongue so be it so that brought me up to um, pretty much up to close to retirement but three years to go, I was invited into the office by my chief pilot. And that's always a bit of a worry. You wonder if it's going to be a visit to the chief pilot with tea and biscuits or a visit to stand on the little square of carpet in the corner. And this turned out to be a tea and biscuits visit. And first thing he said was, Kat, I've had a string of first officers come through to talk about flying with you since you come back to work. I said, that sounds ominous. He said, no, they've all been good. He said, they've all said how much easier you are to fly with since you've been yourself. So I said, well, yeah, that's because all of me is there. Frankly, I used to be a grumpy old so-and-so before I, I uh, transitioned. I'd be detached. I'd sit on the sit on my side of the cockpit reading a book or doing a Sudoku. And, you know, my first officer would be over the other side of the cockpit. And, and really, I wouldn't be interacting very much at all. But once I came back, well, as you've just discovered, stopping me talking is the big trick. Now, he said, we want you to join the diversity team, Kat. I said, oh, is that so I can mentor people coming back to work? in my position. He said, are there any? I said, well, the, the night the notice came out, I had six emails from other transgender colleagues who you don't know about yet, but I do. Uh, he said, oh, well, yeah, you can do that as well if you want. Uh, and, and that reflects, I think, your original comments about the number of transgender people in the UK. Based on estimates, somewhere between 1% and a tenth of 1% of people are transgender in some way or another, or at least gender variant in some way or another. And that would have put the numbers in British Airways at between three and 30. And as I said, on the first night, I got six emails. So we are somewhere in that ballpark. He said, well, you can do that as well if you like, Cap. But no, the real point of asking you is only 5% of British Airways pilots are women. You are now British Airways' most senior woman pilot. And that's his words. I would never have claimed that title for myself. Uh, but since he gave it to me, that's what I ended up with while I was doing diversity work. And I used to go into schools. And the trouble I find was that because the girls had never had any role models, visible role models who were pilots, they didn't even assume that you could be a pilot. I went to one school in, in Liverpool and 
a gran, a mum, and the sixth former came across to me and asked how, I was sitting here in pilot's uniform, and they asked, well, how can young Tracy here become a stewardess? So I asked Tracy what subject she was taking, and it turns out she was doing maths, physics, and English. And, you know, those are perfect subjects to become a pilot. And I said, well, why aren't you asking how Tracy can become a pilot? And they said, oh, can women be pilots now then? And, you know, that was typical of what I discovered in schools. The real message we need to get across is, yes, young women, you can be airline pilots. I even went to Cheltenham Ladies College and I ended up poaching a physics teacher when she found out that she wasn't too old. So, you know, whenever I make a call, a talk like this, I'm always looking at the person across the table and thinking, why don't you become an airline pilot, Helen? That's amazing, Kat. What a story. Um, and I, I think when we spoke last, you talked about that day when you decided that you, well, you agreed with your HR manager that you were going to do this. You described it as stepping off a cliff. Can you just talk a little bit about that, what that first day was like in terms of what you were feeling. Yeah, I mean, coming out, it, it, it's a story that everybody who's come out as anything, to be honest, will understand. It's irrevocable. As soon as we both pressed that send button on that message, there was no going back. Everybody, you know, all my colleagues knew who I was and knew what was happening. And it felt like stepping off a cliff in pitch darkness, in fact, because once you step off a cliff, you can't get back to the top of the cliff. And when you step off in pitch darkness, you've got no idea what you're falling into. But I discovered my cliff was only two inches high because everybody was just so supportive. Uh, I needn't have worried. But of course, that. You don't know that before you come out. There's no way you can know it before you come out. I wouldn't have come out myself. I, I three or four years left to go in my career. And I'd resigned myself to the fact that Kat was going to arrive after I retired. But I happened to come across a couple of other transgender pilots on Facebook, in fact. And they both got completely successful careers, having come out in the previous five years or so. And they convinced me that it wasn't the end of the world to come out as an airline pilot, that it wasn't necessarily a career breaker. British Airways proved that was true. And I love the comment that was made to you about you being the most senior woman in BA at that time. That's just incredible that they acknowledged that. That must have felt like such a huge relief that somebody was acknowledging that for you. Yeah, I mean, it's Al Bridger who did that. He was my chief pilot Boeing at the time, and he's now the um, director of flight operations for British Airways. And he's lived up to his word. When I retired, he nominated me for public, uh, private sector diversity champion of the year at the uh, Excellence in Diversity Awards. And when I turned up to the awards dinner, I happened to be sat next to Susie Green from Mermaids. But the other person on the table with us was Al Bridger, my erstwhile chief pilot. So he, he not only nominated me, but he turned up at the awards ceremony to support me. And I'm glad to say that both Su both Susie and I won that night, as did somebody else at our table. So we ended up with three excellence and diversity awards on our table by the end of the awards ceremony. And it sounds like making that decision with the right support in place at your employer really triggered your uh, career from there on. It's just amazing what you went on to do do you think that's right then that you you did things that you never envisaged would ever be possible absolutely before I retired as I said I was not only was I a grumpy old so-and-so on the flight deck but I was a pilot that's all I wanted to be I didn't want to do anything else for British Airways I didn't particularly want to do anything outside British Airways in terms of you know charity work or extracurricular work 
Once I transitioned, British Airways got a truly committed and loyal employee. And as you can almost certainly hear, I have still nothing but love for British Airways as a company. Uh, I'm not necessarily especially best pleased with some of the things they've done since the pandemic started. But then again, every company is struggling during the pandemic. But uh, you know, they, they generated such loyalty in me by the way they treated me. And that's irreplaceable in, a, in an employee. It, it reflects on British Airways' bottom line when they get employees that are quite so committed, quite so happy to work longer hours at other work other than their core, uh, their core skill. Yes, I was a pilot and I continue to be a pilot and a captain until the day I retired. But they also got all this diversity work out of me. And while they gave me a couple of days a month to do diversity work, that covered a diversity team meeting and one day's extracurricular work in schools. And I was doing anything up to five or six school visits a month at, at peak while I was still a British Airways captain. So they were getting an awful lot more work out of me than ever they did before. And I think it's probably fair to say that you, well, British Airways are a huge employer, aren't they? They've got significant resources. And, and we work with a lot of clients that are not going to have anywhere near those kind of resources that the British Airways have. But you've, you've talked about openness, you've talked about communication and support. And I think it's it's right and you hopefully you'll agree that any any organisation of any size can start to make positive changes. And, and we'll come on to that in a bit more detail, but perhaps just in terms of what smaller employers could do to support their staff, if you could comment on that, Kat. Well, I don't think it makes a great deal of difference whether the, the, the organisation is large or small. The way to support transgender people is to listen to them and to let them lead the process. If you try and establish a policy which is proscriptive, that says, you know, you've got to do this in this order, you've got to make an announcement before you can come back to work as the real you, for instance. That may or may not work for every single transgender individual. Some transgender individuals will want the whole workforce informed so that there can be no sudden surprises for anyone. Some transgender individuals may just want their immediate team involved so that they can continue to work without interruption. Uh, some may want to have an announcement made long before they come back to work as the real them. Some may want to be introduced on the day they come back to work. But the point is that everybody's journey is individual and no way of doing it is right or wrong other than trying to tell the transgender person you have to do it this way. And being able to be equipped to deal with that and to make sure that you're doing the right things. I think there is, as, as I said earlier, there is some nervousness from businesses about getting it right. So just to cover off the discrimination law angle, just to make sure that everybody understands what the basis is for the protection. Um, so obviously we've got the Equality Act, um, which includes various different types of discrimination, including direct discrimination. So um, treating somebody badly because of their race, their age, their disability. Then you've got uh, protection from harassment, again, from the Equality Act. So another form of discrimination that in includes anything that creates an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment. And most people are aware of the protected characteristics. The two most relevant here, are obviously, sex and gender reassignment. Um, and I think it's around gender reassignment that employers typically have the least amount of knowledge on. Um, and around gender recognition certificates and Kat, the, the scope of this protection is is considered to be limited. Um, can you comment on that, please? 
So the gender recognition certificate doesn't really afford any protections itself, but the gender recognition certificate is subject to the Gender Recognition Act of 2004. And the scope of that act is, is really focused and limited. It doesn't have anything to do with all of the things that you just spoke about, which are the Equality Act 2010. Gender Recognition Act just allows for the birth certificate of the transgender person to reflect their, their genuine gender. Uh, it doesn't have any other power whatsoever. So very few people are actually entitled to see a gender recognition certificate or even ask for one. It's purely focused on being sent off to get you a new birth certificate and also being used for pension schemes. And the point with pension schemes is that it's necessary to transfer you from one actuarial table to the other. And the date of your gender recognition certificate issue is the date upon which that transfer of actuarial table should occur. So that's all the gender recognition certificate is for. Now, Equality Act 2010, as you said, provides all those protections against direct discrimination, indirect discrimination, harassment and bullying. And there's no reason whatsoever why protected characteristics should be in direct opposition to one another, which, of course, is a hot subject in the press these days. There's no reason why the protected characteristic of sex should be in opposition to the protected characteristic of gender reassignment. And that is what the protected characteristic is. It's not identity. It's not expression. It's reassignment. However, Equality Act 2010 protection kicks in at the moment the intent forms to seek gender reassignment. So that may well be long before the employee starts coming back to work as the real them. They're protected from the moment their intent forms. They don't even have to seek medical help at that stage. Once the intent forms, they could inform you that they are seeking protection under the Equality Act 2010 for the protected characteristic of gender reassignment. From that moment on, it's illegal to discriminate against them on the grounds of their gender reassignment. It's not illegal to put into place proportional protections for other protected characteristics. What would be illegal would be to say, well, you're now going to come back to work presenting as a woman. You have to use the disabled loose because none of the other women want you in the ladies. That would be against the law. What wouldn't be against the law was to say, because there is some aspect of those loose which requires public nudity, then a proportional response is that you can't use the public space within that loop in order to change. So if a changing room at work, for instance, was just an open communal area, it may be proportionate to say to a transgender person, you need to use the side room because you can't take your clothes off in front of all the other women. That would be a proportionate response. What wouldn't be proportionate would be to say simply because you are transgender, your locker room where you'll never take your clothes off is off limits because you're not a real woman. So you, you've got to understand the subtle differences between a proportionate response and a blanket response. Blanket responses are not acceptable under Equality Act 2010, but pro pro proportionate responses to an individual circumstance may be. And I think it's the practical uh, ways of supporting staff that's really important um, to people that are listening. So you've mentioned bathroom access. That is... Um, something that you know we've had many questions to, to our team about. How, have you got any tips to employers on how to deal with that, just to make sure that they're getting it right? Well, as I said, the, the protection for gender recognition kicks in 
at the point where the intent forms to seek gender reassignment. However, and this is purely a personal opinion, I think it would be unreasonable for a transgender woman who was still coming to work as male or presenting as male and who hadn't had any announcements made to expect to use the ladies. At that stage, I think that transgender person would be more comfortable continuing to use the gents. But that's, as I say, a personal opinion. I think uh, once you get into that subject, for me, the time that I started using the ladies was when I came back to work presenting as me. And my yardstick for that is where am I more likely to cause a breach of the peace? Because there are no specific bathroom laws in the UK. We all, we've all come across the situation where we've been to the, uh, to the toilet and it says that a, uh, a cleaner of the uh, inappropriate gender for this toilet may well be in attendance. Uh, so, you know, it, it's entirely possible for a woman to go into the gents or for a man to go into the ladies for that sort of a reason. I often talk to police cadets and when I talk to them, I ask them, you know, what are the bathroom laws in the UK? And the way I frame it for them is if you are a male police officer and you're called to the ladies for a disturbance, are you allowed to enter? And of course, once you frame it in, in, the, um, in, the, in the terms of a response to a circumstance, the police cadets usually get it right where they've been dithering up until that point. So let's assume now that this police officer has attended a bathroom disturbance. If the bathroom disturbance is because a transgender person has gone in and started flashing inappropriate genitalia, then the transgender person has caused an offence. And that offence would be a public order offence. If, on the other hand, the transgender person has gone in discreetly for a wee in a cubicle and a cisgender woman had caused a fuss because, save us, there's a transgender woman in here and is kicking off and, and you know, threatening abuse and all that sort of thing then the police officer would deal with that appropriately and it would be the cisgender woman that was probably arrested for a breach of the peace. So you've got to be aware that the laws that cover bathroom use are mainly about propriety. They're not about can a person go into that loo. They're about when a person goes into that loo and uses it appropriately without causing a breach of the peace, should they be allowed to continue to do so. So, so honestly, my opinion is that the line should be drawn when that person comes back to work presenting as their, as their real gender, they should undoubtedly be accorded the privileges of that gender, as if it was their gender from birth. And presumably, um, we're seeing more organisations use gender neutral toilets, which would solve the problem. Yeah, yeah, very definitely. Gender neutral toilets are uh, an option. Where they're not an option is if the general workforce isn't being asked to use gender neutral toilets. So what you can't do is put in one gender neutral toilet and say to your transgender employee, right, that toilet's specially for you, you go and use it. That's discrimination, that's direct discrimination. If on the other hand you say, right, all of the toilets are now gender neutral, you can all use whichever one is appropriate, whichever one's closest, then that might well be an appropriate use of gender neutral toilets. And specifically, what you can't do is say to a transgender person, right, the only gender neutral toilet is three floors away from where you work. You've got to climb three flights of stairs just to go to the loo every time you need to, to go for a pee. Uh, that's not appropriate, provided that the provision of gender neutral toilets is universal and is sensibly placed for the workforce, then that would not be discriminatory. But as soon as you start providing something that's specifically for a transgender employee or telling a transgender employee that they've got to use a specific loo 
when you don't tell the rest of the workforce of the same gender that they've got to use a specific loo, then you've you've strayed into discrimination. And this probably links back to what actually should be the first step, I would say, for employers, which is to think about their policies that they've got in place, their equality policies, and ensure that they are trans inclusive and to speak to staff to make sure that they are updating them correctly and that, that people understand what they mean. Not, It's no good just having a policy in place and nobody reads it, nobody understands it, nobody's trained on it. So what would your advice be to employers around policies? What, what do you think about that, Kat? I think the, the best advice is to talk to a, uh, somebody like yourself to actually use expertise because if they're trying to write a policy all on their own they are literally reinventing the wheel there are plenty of companies that got have got superb trans inclusive policies already in place try and find one with the help of a, a, a firm that specializes in it and simply adapt it to your own firm's needs it's pointless to try and start from scratch and within policies then um it might also be worth touching on dress codes and how um, you know some organisations might struggle to deal with that. What's your thoughts on that? Obviously, with your background with British Airways as well. Well, it's amazing to me how many employees have still, how many companies have still got a gender-specific dress code. Uh, I've been helping the air cadets. Uh, I've written part of their policy for transgender cadets in sport, and I've also helped to uh, amend the Royal Air Force's dress code. And what the Royal Air Force has done very cunningly is they've taken the whole dress code and they've written it in a gender neutral fashion. So that rather than saying, uh, you know, women can wear a skirt or uh, or female slacks, they've just said women can wear, a, you know, a, people can wear a skirt or trousers however they feel comfortable and appropriate. Now, theoretically, that could mean, mean male airmen wearing a skirt. Practically, it never has and probably never will. But the next step that they're taking is to get rid of the skirts entirely. So then it'll just be a case of, you know, all airmen will wear trousers. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's not that difficult to write something that's gender neutral. It's, it's, you know, the gender neutral uniforms are becoming the absolute norm. Uh, there are some jobs where that will never be the case. And I, I suppose airline cabin crew is one of the, the main ones. Uh, forward facing female staff are very often expected to dress a little bit more glamorously shall we say than than uh, people in back offices but nevertheless there are ways of writing that in a gender neutral fashion to say that hair has to be neat in an appropriate style rather than to say male employees have got to wear their hair short and off the collar female employees have either got to wear their hair short and off the collar or up just say hair has to be neat and appropriate as soon as you write your whole dress policy in a gender neutral fashion you'll find that everybody settles down and looks just as neat as they did before and it's good I mean there's so much more focus now on flexibility generally I think the pandemic has really helped employers focus on that so having that flexibility it's about making your staff comfortable ultimately um, so um, so points taken then on, on dress code in terms of another area that managers often get quite worried about the use of pronouns um, and name usage and I've heard of dead naming as a as a, a means of harassing trans people. Um, can you comment a little bit on that on in terms of supporting managers to make sure that they're getting it right? Yes, of course. I mean, first of all, a dead name, it's not necessarily a term that people have heard. It's very trans specific and it, it re uh, basically relates to the name that you were before you transitioned. 
So I have a dead name. I'm not going to mention it now because it's nobody's business but my own. And I find it quite prickly when somebody uses it, even if they're using it conversationally to say, oh, when you were such and such. If they call me by that name, I just ignore them because that's not me anymore. And sometimes the hardest people to stop dead naming you are people like banks. And in fact, I was dead named by a bank just a couple of weeks ago uh, because I found out that the particular bank doesn't necessarily pass changes of such information between its banking side and its credit card side. So I ended up being dead named by the credit card side, who, although they'd issued a card in my new name, hadn't amended my records to say this wasn't just a secondary card holder. It's um, it's astonishing how long these things can can come back and bite you. But yeah, dead naming is really unpleasant for transgender people. It's unnecessary. My mum, bless her, she was um, she was in her late eighties when I transitioned, and of course she used to say things. Well, well, I've known old name for. 60 odd years and it's difficult but the tip I gave her worked and once I'd given her this tip she actually stopped dead naming me and it was to treat a transition like having learned a foreign language when you first learn let's say French you're thinking in English you're translating into French and you're trying to keep up with the conversation and you stumble and you get the words wrong and it just doesn't flow but as you progress in your language studies you start thinking in French and that means that everything flows. You can understand what's saying because there's not half your brain thinking about translating what's coming in and translating what you're going to say back. You're just thinking in French and replying in French. And what I said to mum was, you've got to start thinking in cat because what you're doing at the moment is thinking in my old name and then translating it into cat. As soon as you start thinking of me as your daughter, as female and as cat, all of that's going to stop for you. And it, it, she understood what I was talking about because she, she learned Spanish uh, and she was quite good at Spanish at one point. And she got to the stage where she was thinking in Spanish when she was talking Spanish. And she said, yeah, that, that really actually makes a lot of sense. And from that moment on, she started thinking in cat and she never once dead named me again. It's, 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 you know, it's literally as if a light switch had been flicked and she was suddenly up to speed. And if you can get managers particularly, I mean, my manager, as I said, from the first moment I told her what my, my real name was, my new name was, uh, she never once addressed me by my old name. And I appreciated the effort she made to do that. And I think you you made the effort there with your mum to make sure that she, you know, understood you took time to talk to her. It's not always that simple at work when you've got colleagues that you might just come across very occasionally. So what would you say to companies that want to develop things like um, trans-specific diversity training for managers, help cisgender staff to become allies? What would you say to companies that want to, to really focus on that in the next 12 months or so? I think I'd probably say, again, unless you're a really big company with a lot of resources, why reinvent the wheel? There are lots of training programs already out there. Gyres uh, certainly has training programs on our website. Gendered intelligence has them. Uh, for younger people, mermaids has them. Um, it, it's not difficult to find really good training material online. Uh, it's all online at the moment, of course, thanks to, to COVID. But there are also companies that will come in and do talks to your employees. And British Airways used to use me for that role quite often. 
British Airways was open plan offices or what were, what were called floor plates. So I'd come in every so often and do a floor plate talk. And sometimes it would just be, well, you know, it's their turn. But very often it would be that they'd got an employee that was about to come back to work, uh, having come out as transgender. So most of that would be talking to individual employees and allaying their concerns that this person coming back was still going to be the person they knew, just presented differently, maybe a little bit changed in attitudes. And my attitudes, my personal attitudes to life have changed enormously since I transitioned. Uh, in a much more caring direction than ever I, I was before. Whether that was actually an embedded change of attitude or it was just the fact that most of my life was spent camouflaging my femininity, that's that's another matter entirely because before transition, I was roughy-tufty. I, I lived in a beard for most of my life. I uh, was a, a scuba diving instructor trainer, you know, all things that, and, and even the flying, I mean, you know, the whole flying career could be looked on with retrospect as camouflage for who I truly was, because nobody would suspect you're trans when you're an airline captain. It's it's just one of those things, you know, it's, it's it, my attitudes definitely softened when I transitioned, that's for sure. But yeah, soft uh, floor plate talks, you know, talks to an individual workshop or department. Very often I was called across to engineering um, to talk to a, a, a workshop that, that they had a couple of transgender employees in engineering. And sometimes they, you know, they'd have gone into a department for the first time and they'd have suffered a bit of harassment or abuse or catcalling or something like that. They'd call me in the next week to just go in and talk to that floor plate and basically explain why what they were doing was firstly unpleasant, secondly illegal, and thirdly subject to disciplinary action if they did it again. So there was definitely some iron fist involved, but for the most part it was just trying to enlighten them trying to uh, to bring them up to speed that this person is still a really competent engineer and is still deserving of your respect as a colleague and as a human being and that's all they're asking for so i think what you're saying then is think about consulting with staff talk to them about what inclusion looks like within your organization and that will really help you with your strategy and your mission to make sure that you're supporting trans staff and lgbtq plus staff in your workplace and, and think about raising awareness leading from the the top down um think about awareness days make positive statements so you've got um trans day of visibility it's just gone on the 31st of march think about um other days as well where you can really celebrate and su show support to your staff um and my my takeaway point from what you've just said kat is thinking cat i think that's just such a lovely message i, I love that um well thank you cat it's been really interesting i just like as a final point from you if you could give employers one piece of advice to how they can best support trans employees what would it be oh that's an easy one helen listen to the employee let them lead the process there is no one right way to let it, to help an employee tra uh, transition listen to the employee whatever they need if it's not unreasonable, try and provide. Perfect. Thank you, Kat. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and I've certainly learned a lot from you. So thank you very much for your time. And that's it for today. If you'd like to read more about what we've discussed, head to erwinmitchell.com and follow the link to our PASL blog on six ways your organisation can support trans employees. We also run a varied training programme to include a virtual HR conference that's taking place shortly. 
and we'll have a dedicated session on diversity and inclusion. If you'd like more information on this or if we can help at all with policies, training or you'd just like to have a chat about the issues we've discussed today, please do get in touch. Thanks for listening to the Owen Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then please do join us for the next episode of our employment series. Stay safe.